Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 337, recorded January 25th, 2012. WPS, a troubled protocol. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring voice-activated Sync AppLink. Now you can control select smartphone apps with your voice, so you keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. Check it out on the 2012 Ford Fiesta and at Ford.com slash technology. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers uh, protecting you online. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, our explainer-in-chief, the man in charge of Security Now, the man who explains how this stuff works and what to do to keep yourself safe, Mr. Stephen Gibson. Hey, Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. He's the guy in charge at GRC.com. That's the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of uh, Spinrite. He has one, it's kind of nice, because you have one thing that you do for a living, which yep. is the pays, software. Pays the bills. Pays the bills. And that gives you enough free time to not only do this show, which is a lot of work, but to program and work and study. And so you've kind of got a good life if 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 what you want to do is kind of be in you know in touch with what's going on in technology. Yeah, putter around and work with technology <laughs> and you know, come up with new stuff from time to time. He's a and putterer. No, I'm, it's, I'm a putterer. I putter. <laughs> putter. I putter. So uh, today, what are we puttering around, puttering around with? Okay, as I promised last week, um, when I learned from a number of experts in the industry that my off-the-cuff idea for solving the WPS problem couldn't work. Oh, no. I thought, I thought okay, why not? So that required me to dig in and really understand exactly how this WPS protocol works. The good news is it is not tricky. I mean, this is this is going to be a propeller head episode. This is one where, you know, we're going to need our listeners to focus and concentrate a little bit. But the the takeaway will be some cool new understanding that we've never had before of crypto on at least this podcast, and a a really good understanding of what the problems are with WPS. And the bad news is that, that there is no good solution. They're just, they've made some compromises in the implementation of this. Apple got it right because Apple's approach uses a one-time eight-digit pin, whereas the rest of the industry has it printed on a label. That's the big mistake that they made. And so this episode, we're going to, first of all, as always, catch up on some interesting security news. Lots of interesting legislation has has gone down in the last week and 
and you know we'll bring ourselves current uh, with that stuff. But then I want to I want to explain exactly how the protocol works and introduce a couple new ideas. I talked about it briefly last week. This the the notion of how it's possible to prove you know something without telling what it is, which yeah. which is a really interesting problem. You want to be able to prove your knowledge, but not, not divulge yeah. what that is. Yes. And it turns out it's not hard using the, the bag of tricks we already have with crypto stuff. This would be such a fun assignment for a student, a smart high school student or a college comp science study. Uh, student, uh, yeah. how do you do this? Yeah. Well, well, I'll tell you what. Everyone's going to know about an hour from do now. Do a thought experiment right now. Think about it. <laughs> and, in a, and in a little while, Steve will give you uh, this. I love that. It's like cover the page, kids, and or, think or, about or it. Or hit, hit pause. Hit pause and think about it. And uh, and then Steve will explain a clever way to do this. Really, really clever. I like it. And it actually will help if you think about it before you hear Steve's solution so you understand what the issues involved are. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Independently inventing things is the best way to figure out t t how things work. There's at something least, at least trying. Even if you can't do it, banging yeah. your head against it gives you some idea of the parameters involved of this, of the challenge involved and so forth. But if you don't feel like that, just <laughs> that's how I do this show. Passive <laughs> osmosis absorption. <laughs> hey, we're going to take a break. Uh, talk. We got some security news too, and we'll talk about all of that in a bit. But first, I want to talk a little bit about my friends at the Ford Motor Company, the uh, creators of these fabulous cars with uh, and vehicles with a Ford Sync and AppLink. Uh, my Ford Touch, just neat stuff. So, in fact, this would be another thought experiment you could do. All right, let's let's give you the the parameters here. Um, you've got a vehicle, you've got a car which hasn't really changed in in conception for a long time, right? I mean, when did the car kind of settle on the gas pedals on the right, the brake pedals on the left, the clutch all the four way to the left, four wheels exactly, steering wheel on the left or the right, depending on where you live, uh, gearbox. I mean, they're really uh, the cars of the '30s established the fundamental technology and it's all been little uh, adaptions but not much adaptations to that improvements on engines things like that um so fast forward to the 21st century and what is the what is one thing consumers really want they they want to they want more than just a, a an am radio in the dash they they want to be connected to the outside world but there's a problem uh it's distracting and we're really learning that, you know, when you get when kids are pulling out their cell phones and they're steering with their elbows and they're texting with their thumbs, this is not good. Uh, distractive driving doesn't just have to be your phone. It could be looking down and look at the radio, twiddle the knobs or change a, a CD. These, these are all dangerous things to do. So and Ford understands that. And of course, Ford is all about safety, but they want to give consumers what they want. So that's the thought experiment. How do you do this? You want, and it turns out when they've done a lot of studies on this, if you keep your eyes on the wheel, I mean, if you're looking out the windshield and paying attention to what's the landscape, your hands on the wheel, so you're looking, you're steering, you're paying attention, you still have sufficient cognitive, most of us, not everybody, most of us have sufficient cognitive resources to have a phone conversation or to listen to the radio or, and this is where Ford did something very clever, talk to our car. 
Maybe they saw Knight Rider. I don't know. But that's the whole premise behind Ford Sync is drive safely. Do not get distracted and yet have access to these to GPS, uh, to the broad variety of entertainment, not just your radio, but the, the stuff provided by your, your smartphone, um, and still be safe. And so this is what Ford Sync initially and now my Ford Touch really solves it. And they've added this new thing called Sync App Link. And I, I remember talking last year when they had announced it. It's now here. When they announced it last year, and, and Alan said, the CEO of my, my good buddy Alan, the CEO of Ford. <laughs> That's such a name drop. My buddy Alan said um, that uh, they, they were really um, interested in leveraging the fast iterations, the innovation that's going on in the cell phone space. You know, cars, it takes about, Ford's really sped up the cycle, but about three years from, from beginning to ship uh, for a new car. That's a long time. Cell phones, it's about three months. Sometimes you think three weeks. There's always a new one out and new features and new apps. So how do we get the cell phone, which you've got up and you've updated it and you've downloaded apps, how do we get that into the ecosystem of Ford Sync? And that's when they came up with AppLink. And this is exactly what you do. They created an API. They published the API. They invited app. Uh, designers to work with the API to create products that would work with Ford Sync. And the first ones are already out. There's Pandora. That's the one you'd really want. So you have your radio, but Pandora, you, I don't know if you've used Pandora. It was so cool because you give it a couple of artists and then it makes a radio station based not just on those artists, but on similar kinds of music. So it's a great discovery tool. You could say, and with Pandora on your phone, you have to have Pandora on your iOS or Android device. I think on some, uh, yeah, I think on Microsoft phones as well. And with Pandora on your phone, you can then say, you can talk to your phone with your hands on the wheel, eyes on the road, press the button on the sink and say, play, open Pandora, uh, play my classic rock station and starts playing. You have all the Pandora con commands. You could say, uh, tell Pandora thumbs up on that song, thumbs down to skip that song, bookmark that song so I can buy it later, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's not just Pandora. They've had Stitcher. They've had Slacker. Those are podcast clients. So you can listen to this show. You don't have to download it ahead of time. You can just say to your phone, hey, Stitcher, go out and get security now, 337, and play it for me, and it'll start playing. Open Beak reads tweets. I, I, there, there are, there are. Uh, I think on, on launch a couple of months ago, they had three or four apps, and at CES they announced another dozen. It's so exciting. AppLink gives your a car an API. How about that? Op open Beak. Open for, Beak. For yeah. Twitter. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I'd never heard of this program. You can read timelines or read replies with Open Beak, and it's a, and it's a completely open API. So other developers are working on this. It's just going to explode. Voice-activated sync with AppLink is available uh, in many Ford vehicles, including the 2012 Ford Fiesta. Visit Ford.com slash technology if you want to know more. They've got a great website with uh, details about all the very interesting. If you're like technology, you know, this is, this is a really fascinating nexus between uh, industrial age America, you know, Henry Ford, the assembly line. And 21st century digital technology, fascinating. And I don't think this company has really established itself as the leader in this. Ford.com slash technology. Or you know what? The best thing to do, drive one at a Ford dealer near you. All right, let's get the uh, security news. And then we can talk about WPS, Stevie. Yeah, I got many, many people tweeted me 
various um, instances of this troubling judgment that came down from a judge in Peyton, Colorado, who ruled that Fifth Amendment U.S. Constitution protection does not apply to encrypted laptop passwords. Now, of course, the Fifth Amendment famously is is the the amendment that that allows an individual to to not incriminate themselves. Um, so, so they're saying that 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 the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply in the instance of of forcing someone to give up their password, even though doing so would be self-incriminating. This judge, Robert Blackburn, wrote, he said, I find and conclude that the Fifth Amendment is not implicated by requiring production of the unencrypted contents of the Toshiba satellite M305 laptop computer. He also said that the All Writs Act, which dates back to 1789 and has been used to require telephone companies to aid in surveillance, could also be invoked in forcing decryption of hard drives. And in doing this, he sided with the U.S. Department of Justice, which argued that Americans' Fifth Amendment right to remain silent doesn't apply to their encryption passphrases. Oh, I saw this. This is really horrible. Yes. Federal prosecutors who did not immediately respond to requests for comment did post a, a brief, and they said public interests will be harmed absent requiring defendants to make available unencrypted contents in circumstances like these. You know, Failing- public interest is harmed by not being able to execute anybody you want whenever you want. <laughs> that's that's demonstrably true. But <laughs> that's why we have a constitution. And interestingly, Leo, this is this has been a case that's been flopping around for years. Well, and other courts we- have, ru- have ruled other ways, right? Yes, and, and we talked about this particular case. This was a a, a woman who is accused of of mortgage fraud and apparent and they believe has a bunch of incriminating records on her laptop. In this case, she's not using TrueCrypt; she's using Symantec's PGP encryption, which is the same thing of a really strong whole drive encryption, and she's not. She hasn't said she even remembers the passphrase, so she hasn't said that. But her attorney, who actually has done some work in the past for Phil Zimmerman, right? And BGP's so, you know, creator. he's, up to, yeah. he's yeah. up to speed on this stuff. She got the right um, guy. Yes, exactly. So, so the DOJ says failing to compel Ms. Frisku amounts to a concession to her and potential criminals. And here we go again. Of course, we're marching out child pornography, you know, parens, be it in child exploitation, national security, terrorism, financial crimes, or drug trafficking cases, that encrypting all inculpatory digital evidence will serve to defeat the efforts of law enforcement officers to obtain such evidence through judicially authorized search warrants and thus make their prosecution impossible. You know, so basically that's a long-winded way of saying we don't like encryption. Yeah, because we can't prosecute bad guys. But and, 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 they, and you're right. They always bring up child pornography. And they always talk about what this woman's alleged crime was. And that, that's not germane. 
Now, um, right now, this is just some random judge. He was it doesn't really matter. He was a, he was a Bush appointee, so he's been around for a while. This is not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has not confronted this topic, but a bunch of lower courts have. Now, the way the law works, uh, I was married to an attorney for a while, so I've I've got to see this in action. Is that in the way attorneys work? Is that they a they normally form a theory of a case through analogy. So they'll they'll try to say, well, this is analogous to some other situation which, you know, has the outcome that they want and try to say, you know, these are the same things in different clothes. Right. So um, prosecutors tend to view the PGP passphrases as akin to someone possessing a key a to locker. a safe. Yeah, or safe. Okay. Right. Filled with incriminating documents. That person can, in general, be compelled to hand over the key. Interesting. So there is, there is existing case law where if, if someone had a key to something, then they could be forced to give it over. And, but and so this, this all comes down to the, the Fifth Amendment and the right not to incriminate yourself. And so you're saying in the, in the case of a, of a physical safe, the courts have not deemed that uh, protected by the Fifth, protected. Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. Yes. And, it's, and um, other examples include the U.S. Supreme Court saying that defendants can be forced to provide fingerprints, blood samples, or voice recordings. Uh, potentially so, uh, uh, incriminating. Yeah, arg and arguably, you know, skating on this Fifth Amendment, you know, incrimination issue. Now, on the other side, civil libertarians um, cite other Supreme Court cases that conclude that Americans cannot be forced to give, quote, compelled testimonial communications and extending the legal shield of the Fifth Amendment to encryption passphrases. Courts already have ruled that such protection extends to the contents of a defendant's mind. So goes wow. the argument. So why shouldn't a passphrase similarly be shielded as well? So the idea is if it's a physical key, that seems to cut on the other side of this issue and you can be forced to hand that over. But the argument is, if it's something you know, then the Fifth Amendment and the Supreme Court has said you cannot be you, you cannot have compelled testimony of the value of that passphrase. So anyway, this, this is, is fascinating. You know, this is why people become lawyers, because it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it truly is. And, you know, and and what's interesting is these things are not black and white. I mean, I mean, there is, you know, the law operates in a big gray zone and and it, it, after you've had enough exposure to it, you develop an appreciation for the fact that, you know, there are hard problems that don't have an easy and obvious solution. It's a living and, document. I know people want to be, you know, constructionist about the Constitution, but the, I don't think the founders considered encryption. Right. No, <laughs> no, and in fact, that's one of our problems. Of course, is that our beloved Constitution is creaky compared to the challenges that it's being given these days. But um, there was another thing that we talked about some some years ago uh, on the podcast about the issue of warrantless GPS tracking, and the U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled that GPS tracking of a vehicle requires a warrant. Um, and that this was we were case, happy about. That was We talked about this case, right? 
not you and I, but maybe oh, on one show. of the other okay. podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a guy, Antoine Jones. Um, the uh, U.S. Department of Justice had argued that Jones had, quote, no reasonable expectation of privacy. So that was that was, you know, their phraseology for their ability to put a tracking device on his car. He had no reasonable expectation of privacy. But in a unanimous decision, which says, whoa, okay, you know, everybody, you know, when does that happen? In a unanimous decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said that U.S. law enforcement agents need to obtain court-approved warrants before tracking suspects using GPS devices. The decision rejects arguments from the U.S. Department of Justice that a four-week-long warrantless GPS tracking of a suspect's vehicle was within the law. The decision upholds a U.S. Court of Appeals decision that overturned the conviction of this Antoine Jones. Justice Scalia wrote, quote, We hold that the government's installation of a GPS device on a target's vehicle and its use of that device to monitor the vehicle's movements constitutes a search. The, uh, so, as I remember, maybe it was in This Week in Law. I can't remember where we, where we had this discussion. But as I remember, the, the question was, because the, the car was in, I think, in his garage. And the question was whether they had the right, you know, there's no question sneak, they could, could to go into his, in. to sneak in. There's no, or, and whether his car, whether they had the right to access his, his vehicle. Yeah, I think this is broader. Uh, uh, Scalia is saying that the use of a device to monitor the vehicle's movements of any kind. is a search. So it falls under wow. the warrant requirement for, for searches, Very which interesting. is really good news. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like it's completely the opposite of those other rulings, this PGP ruling. I know. You know, the problem is that the language, I was just looking at the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, and the language um, isn't, you know, it's it's, it's antiquated. And, and so it's it's going to take uh, interpretation. Interpretation, yes. Um, let me see if I can, uh, I can find this here. Yeah, it's like, what did the framers intend... And it's, it said no. A, it says this. The, the essential clause is: no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Yes, that's it. And so you could interpret that. Well, you can't be forced to testify against yourself, and that's of course how it's been interpreted. Right, taking the fifth, but taking the fifth. Said. But is but is giving somebody a password, uh, testifying against yourself? I'm not sure that's the case. Certainly, yeah. I think it is more anal- analogous. I hate to say it, to taking a fingerprint or or a DNA sample. Well, and ultimately, remember that contempt of court is the charge. That is, this individual, right? If compelled to divulge the password, I mean, the fact is, we now have the technology that makes it utterly unbreakable. So that's not even a question. So this individual has complete control over whether the contents of the laptop will be released and made available or not. So she's able to say, I choose no. Right. And then the court holds her in contempt and does whatever they're going to do with her. They that can way. keep her so, in jail indefinitely. That's the, that's the thing. I'm, yeah, well, that's uh, really good. And then, of course, that's why, uh, and we've talked about this before, uh, TrueCrypt has this plausible deniability feature. Um. Which, right, where you're able to take Slack space and set up another sort of a, another containment that that no force on earth can prove is 
data. The way TrueCrypt works, it, it randomizes it and just looks like noise. Right. So you're able to say, here's my password. Look, there's nothing bad here. <laughs> and, and then there is, however, like a, a trap door. There's a back door. There's another whole drive which is there. Now, you know, the problem is everybody knows about that. It's not right. like it's a secret. So, right. And there would but, be other you know. ways for law enforcement. You know, I once asked uh, the Secret Service about this. I, we, uh, we talked to the Secret Service. So Patrick Norton and I flew out and spent some time with them. Cool. And they said, you know, the truth is most, we don't, we don't, this, these cases don't come up much. This was, by the way, 10 years ago. These cases don't come up much because most of the time criminals just give us the password. It's not, <laughs> in most cases, you get a confession of some kind. People, and in, in people fact, tell in, you. yes. And in researching this, there was another case where this was the same the, the same issue, and the individual gave the password. The drive was decrypted, and it provided evidence that that led right. to his being found guilty, and he was incarcerated. Right. So, as you said, you know, most it, of the time, it, people just confess. <laughs> right. And from my standpoint, as a technologist, I I won't take an ethical or moral position i'll just say this is math this is capability this is right. technology how it's used is not the technology's fault it's the fault of the people so you know encrypting stuff is something that there are you know lots of valid uses for i i want to be able to have my little 32 gig thumb drive on my keychain and have it immune from poking by the valet or you know the car service station because we know that, that that that's been a problem in the past. So you know that's an entirely valid reason for me having really strong encryption and having access to it. And you know there unfortunately criminals are going to be able to shield themselves using the same technology, but it's not the technology's fault, right? Any more than it's the phone's fault that. Uh People can use a telephone to... Uh, to upset somebody. Upset somebody. It's not, you know, that's technology. It's neutral. Right. So DNS poisoning, it turns out. We haven't talked about for many years since Dan Kaminsky uh, warned the world that DNS servers were more vulnerable than we thought. But it apparently bit CBS. Uh, the uh, hacker group Anonymous is claiming credit for changing the main DNS for CBS.com. Wow. <laughs> it was 92-122-127-27, and it got changed. It was completely repointed to 198-99-118-36 and 37. And, you know, it only lasted 20 minutes because, again, this is not something hard to fix. The problem, of course, is that if the if the changed entries had a long caching time, then anybody who retrieved that DNS record during that 20-minute window would have caused that CBS dot, the, the, the bad record to get cached for the duration of, I mean, which could be days or weeks. And so what happened was the site went completely black. It went completely dark for people who... who when they went to cbs.com, required querying the DNS system in order to get the IP. That is, you know, if they had had um, going through through an ISP and the ISP's entry for cbs.com had expired, then the ISP would go and fetch it from the second level servers and then cache it. So, you know, it's a problem, and uh, we don't know any more details. Uh, CBS is not 
saying anything except that, well, it only lasted 20 minutes. They're trying to minimize it. The problem is actually had to be longer lived than that. But uh, DNS poisoning still is is happening. Not often, but uh, still a problem. It, and uh, it's, it's really intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, and it completely took the site. It aimed everybody who wanted to go to CBS and all of its subdomains. I mean, everything got pointed. It was it was there wasn't any even anything really there. There was a, a blank page with one file. So whoever did this wasn't, you know, getting much benefit from it. So it was probably not planned. They probably saw a tiny window of opportunity to perform some sort of an of, of an attack and slipped in and did it, but really, you know, weren't set up to to present people with some, you know, the danger, of course, is not to take them to a blank page, but to a fake CBS page with like all kinds of fake news and right. and things, or, so, or a page with a login for your Google account or something like ah, that. Ah, yep, exactly. And that's twenty also, minutes would be enough to capture quite a few. Oh goodness, yes. Well, and and again, as I said, if the caching, if the caching record said this is this this entry is valid for a week. Then right. it wouldn't get flushed. Right. You, you know, they'd still be serving the bad IP until it finally did expire, which is which is why DNS takes a while. While DNS changes take a while to propagate across the internet because the the power of DNS is that it is caching. Um, however, it's worth noting that this could not happen with DNSSEC. So mm-hmm. this kind of spoof, there's no way that you could get a record that was fraudulent. Once DNSSEC is signing records, and and so this is, this is a variant, of course, on what SOPA and and PIPA were trying to do to us in that legislation, where where sites would get redirected. We we talk about that a little bit here in a second, so we'll be coming back to that. I did want to mention that DreamHost, a very big hosting provider that's been around forever. They're based here in Southern California. Um, they detected. Some sort of unauthorized activity on one of their databases is the only thing they said. But as a consequence of that, they did the right thing. They shut down access. They, they obsoleted everyone's FTP and shell passwords as a precautionary measure and then sent out notices to all DreamHost customers that were affected saying, we're really sorry for the inconvenience. Something is going on that looks suspicious so we're going to be better safe than not and you're going to have to come in and um update your your passwords so i was pl- pleased to see them handling that yeah, nicely that's neat. Yeah. now many people i'm sure you heard about this uh noted that uh mega upload got taken down yes oh yeah yeah and it's interesting because I, the first thing I saw about it was someone I thought made a very good point, which is, well, that happened without SOPA and PIPA. So the system works now if we just use the laws we have rather than, you know, advancing laws that are somewhat questionable. Oh, it's so hard. You have to go through due process. <laughs> you have to, you know, enlist the support of other law enforcement agencies all over the world. It's just it'd be so much easier just to flip a switch, Steve. Yeah, wouldn't that? Just push a button. Yeah. Why make it so hard? Yep. The Sands Institute, in reporting this, said that U.S. federal law enforcement agents have shuttered the MegaUpload.com website, seized 18 domains connected to the site. And indicted 
seven executives and two companies. The company is based in Hong Kong, which means, you know, uh, even in Hong Kong, probably nearby the post office. It's possible to to extend our reach and make that happen. The executives face a number of charges, including criminal copyright infringement and conspiracy to commit money laundering. The government says that Mega Upload allowed users to access movies before they were released in theaters, as well as music, television shows, ebooks, and software, most in violation of copyright law. Oh, where can I get that? That sounds great. Yeah, I like that pre-release <laughs> part. Uh, Mega Upload has reportedly earned more than $175 million U.S. See, that's the issue, is uh, is did they know and did they intentionally profit from this? Yeah. And, you know, FBI, looking, I mean, I don't want to prosecute these guys before they get their day in court, but if you if you kind of look at all the evidence, they picked, a, they picked one that it was a, this is a good prosecution in the sense that they have a case, I think. Yes. Uh, uh, this uh, Sands goes on saying the FBI also seized company assets, while some have used the closure of mega upload to point to the need for stronger anti-piracy laws like SOPA and PIPA, others have pointed out that if the U.S. government can shut down such a large operation, perhaps such laws are not necessary as they already have the power they were, need. Were there, um, their servers in Hong Kong, were they offshore? Because the, that was the contention of SOPA is, yeah, well, no, no problem. We can handle U.S piracy sites but what about off-site offshore oh yeah they had to re they had to reach outside of the u.s jurisdiction yeah. they went to and, new zealand to get these guys yep and in fact one of the guys legally changed his name yeah to something kim kim.com <laughs> his real name is kim schmitz i think yeah and uh, i mean you know look i'm not going to go through all the reasons why they seem like they might be guilty but um and, and, you know, you can also, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories. This company had also announced a new music label based on their upload service that was about to launch. And so, so apparently their servers were in the U.S. They were in Virginia. Ah. So that's why this worked. And that's the whole contention of Pippa and Sopa is, yeah, well, if you're in Virginia, we got you. But if you're outside, if your servers are in Hong Kong, then we got a problem because, you know, or let's say they're in China where we, you know, it's so much diff more difficult. There's no copyright law in China at all. So that's the whole idea. And so the idea of Sopa and Pippa was to... Is there, is there no copyright law in China? <laughs> it's not enforced. You can go. Oh, it's so weird. Okay. I, I mean, I don't so know. I, the there may not be. I don't know if it's on the books. So who knows what well, the law is? You can go in Beijing quite openly into a department store, go down to the basement, and every movie ever made... Yeah. Is available on DVD, high quality copies. I mean, it's for a uh, dollar. For a dollar, so it's it's wide open there. Uh, I can presume that uh, if these guys had been running their servers out of China, that we wouldn't have gotten much cooperation from China. Um, yeah. So that's the point. Is what and and of course that's why it's a broken system because it doesn't take the servers down. It just kind of disconnects them from U.S. users by right. by modifying DNS and search, and that's the problem. Right. Right. Now, what was interesting, too, was a U.K.-based technology news site, v3.co.uk, reported that, quoting from them, panic is spreading among file-sharing websites with a U.S. Oh, yeah. user base. A lot of them with, went offline or, or yes, changed their with, policies. It, yes. They said FileSonic, FileServe, and Uploaded.2, all restricting their services following the shutdown of Mega Upload last week. Quote, 
all sharing functionality on FileSonic is now disabled, says a message on the FileSonic homepage. Our service can only be used to upload and retrieve files that you have uploaded personally. Uploaded.2 and FileServe carry no messages on their homepages, but FileServe is said to be taking similar action to FileSonic, while Uploaded.2 reportedly suspended service to U.S. customers. So, nope, that's really interesting, too. They, they looked at what happened and said, oh, uh, wow, we better clean up our act because we don't want to be, ta- we don't want to, you know, have ourselves rounded up and carted off. Right. Now, the EFF has a, has a nice little piece that I wanted to share with our listeners. It's pretty short. Um, there, it's the EFFs, of course, are our, our Electronic Freedom Foundation. Electronic Freedom Foundation. Frontier Foundation. Electronic yeah, Frontier. I, I, that wasn't right. Frontier. Yeah. Electronic Frontier Foundation. Right. They said, post SOPA and PIPA, what's next? No legislation, more innovation. They said, last week's historic protests made clear just what the tech community and Internet users are capable of accomplishing when they act together. Not only have the Protect IP Act, PIPA, and the House counterpart, the Stop Online Piracy Act been tabled for now, but in a welcome change, the public debate has increasingly considered the interests of Internet users and the opinions of those who actually understand how the, inter- how the technology works. Imagine that, Leo. Despite this, we keep hearing people ask, what's next? And where do we go from here? Our answers, our answer, we don't need legislation and let's keep moving innovation forward. The answer to maintaining an open, thriving Internet does not lay in legislation, but rather in fostering innovative and often sometimes disruptive business models that allow content creators to get paid and consumers to have easy access and efficient access to content. We've seen time and again that consumers are willing to pay at a price point that makes sense for them. This is Economics 101. When new business models emerge... Artists and fans win. It's only the traditional distributors and gatekeepers, we're looking at you, MPAA and RIAA, who lose. So it's no wonder that those parties desperately tried to ram through dangerous legislation to stop disruptive new business models with no regard for the attendant serious potential collateral damage. Remember that these are the lobbies that have a history of attacking nascent technologies as far back as the player piano. A modern-day case in point, last week's public takedown of Mega Upload. We've only heard one side of the story so far, so let's set aside the many outstanding legal questions. But it's clear that many artists were using the site to connect with their fans. That's right. Given the legacy media company's reluctance... To innovate internally, it's especially unfortunate that the dramatic takedown of Mega Upload could chill future innovators who would otherwise experiment with new business models. To be sure, there are plenty of exciting new content services emerging. For example, take the Hubble Indie Humble Indie Bundle video game developers who have realized substantial success devising a pay-what-you-want scheme for distributing video games, or artists like Jonathan Colton, who has, with much success, 
produced and distributed his own music and who recently provided this pithy advice to creators who reject new business models but complain about piracy. Quote, make good stuff, then make it easy for people to buy it. There's your anti-piracy plan. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, but, you know, I, and, you know, I, you know me. I'm very anti-soap and Pippa. We went black and white last week and everything. I do have to point out that if you're a rights holder, you have the right to protect your rights. Whether it's good business is another, another question. But it is not – it is completely your right to protect your rights even though uh, – the because the point EFF is making is, well, don't protect your rights because look for a better business model. But as it stands, they have a right to protect themselves. We're just, yep. So it's a, it is not it's not completely easy. And remember, I am on the Kill Hollywood uh, side. I mean, that's what we're doing here. That's what Twit is all about. You know, Y Combinator, um, somebody in the chat room just passed this along to me, is a um, uh, what they call a startup school. It's one of the best known for training entrepreneurs. They give them seed money. They teach them how to do a startup. They just issued a request for submissions for businesses that kill Hollywood. <laughs> we want to fund startups that will compete with movies and TV, not to protect the world from more SOPAs, but because SOPA brought it to our attention that Hollywood's dying. They must be dying if they're resorting to such tactics. If yeah. movies and TV were growing rapidly, their growth would take up all their attention. So he's, so they're saying, let's come up with some business models that speed the process. I'm all for yes. that. That's what we're doing here. That's what this is all yep. about. Yep, and it works, Leo. But at the same time, I'm I'm not going to gainsay the right of content creators to protect themselves. They do have that right, and they ought to have that right. Let's just not let give. Let's not have the pendulum swing so far in their direction that it that it uh, takes away the rights of the rest of us to have a free and open internet and a right to compete. And we're back to gray area, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you know, many problems do not have good solutions. I agree. And, you know, so it is necessary to strike some compromise to say, well, I mean, and I, I think we're there. It's interesting that valid use of mega upload has unfortunately been damaged by this, you know, the wholesale takedown of the entire site. You know, it does sound like this was a little blunt. And, uh, there are a lot know, of people who have legitimate files on mega upload, business files and more, who are out of luck. Yeah. That stuff's gone. So, uh, you know, that's a very good point. We, we've yeah. got to find a way that, that is not all in one side, all one-sided, you know. Yeah, we will. I mean, I we, think we are. This is all this is all new. I, exactly. And and you know, anytime you have a disruption like this, you're going to have unhappiness and uh, and trouble. Look at the industrial revolution. <laughs> you know, if you were a weaver <laughs> in 16th uh, 17th century Britain, bad times ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry. Yeah. What can I do? So, um I don't have a testimonial to share because I wanted to tell our listeners that there, I saw a clear effect on spin rights sales from what I did last week. Oh, really? Um, remember that last week, I when I was going through the mailbag for our Q&A, I ran across a neat letter from a relatively new listener who said, you know, Steve, um, love the podcast. You and Leo are great, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I listened to the spin right testimonials, but... I can't figure out what it does. And 
I went over he to your website. He currently was not alone. <laughs> and I watched the video. Exactly. That's my point. He said, I watched the video and it's very entertaining, but I still don't really know what it does. So I launched into a sort of extemporaneous, here's how Spinrite works. And that's now on the record in episode 336. So I just, in case anybody who's who feels similarly, who doesn't really have an appreciation for the nature of the way defects can grow on a disc, how sectors can go bad that were once good, um, how, how and why preventative maintenance actually works, and how it's possible to recover data from a sector that is unreadable. Um, I explained all that last week. So I just wanted to, to give another pointer back to last week, episode 336's um, explanation of what Spinrite does. And I'm going to come up with some way of sticking that up on the website. Yeah, you can just extract it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you it's know, just... It one way nice. to do it, I just uh, as a thought, we put this on YouTube, youtube.com slash twit, and there is a um, way to do a YouTube URL that jumps to a particular uh, yes, time marker. Yeah. yeah. So you could use the YouTube embed code. I know you don't like Flash. Actually, there's HTML YouTube as well. So you go to Yeah, the, you, yeah. YouTube no longer needs Flash. That's right. Uh, and so you could have a link. I don't know, though, if the non-Flash version will jump. Anyway, it's worth investigating that you could just... This is what we're going to do on the Tech Guy site. The new Tech Guy site um, will have... Because every show of the radio show is a question and answer, question and answer. Yep. So we'll just have it jump right to that question, and you'll be able to watch the question and the answer. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Anyway, thank you okay. for that explanation. So now we all know the magic that is spin right yeah, well, and it, it had an effect. It was very That's clear That's that, that that this guy wasn't alone in thinking, okay, what does it do? And so I'm really glad he asked the question. I'm glad I responded. I'm glad I saw it. And uh, and so, you know, thank you, everybody, for for uh, supporting me and uh, yes. by buying Spinrun. I yeah, really appreciate you. it. Yeah. So um, WPS, Wi-Fi Protected Security. Um, this is we've been talking about it for several weeks. Um, it's not going to go away. Unfortunately, we know that we have an industry full of of Wi-Fi routers that can be configured not only using a secure passphrase using WPA and WPA2 um, with a really long unguessable passphrase, but in an attempt to make it easier for people to pair a device with a Wi-Fi access point, whether a router or a standalone gateway or whatever, the, the Wi-Fi Alliance decided that they wanted to come up with a you know, something a little more like Bluetooth. We've talked about Bluetooth pairing in the past where you just sort of, you know, you tell each end that you want to pair and, and then they find each other. Well, the problem is that routers are incredibly inexpensive. No manufacturer wants to spend any money they don't have to. I mean, even even some of them that have a button, um, that, that's considered an expense because you take the cost of the button, even though it's mere pennies, and you need to multiply it, you know, by markup and stocking and shipping and, and all that, and it adds up. So, so they typically don't have displays. They have a pin printed on the outside, an eight-digit pin. Now, as we know, it came to light a few weeks ago at a security conference. Some very smart person realized that there was, for some reason, 
four digits were being verified at a time and that, you know, there aren't many combinations of four digits, zero, 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 zero through nine, 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 nine. So that's it's a little bit like Herman Cain's tax plan, but um, uh, nine, nine, nine. So um, so that's 10, that's going to be a trivia months. question. You know, I don't, I don't think that's going to be widely known in a few months, but that's a good one. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up, kids. So um, so so that what was what was discovered was that the the this eight digit pin was being sent half at a time. And so what, res- what the result was a massive drop in effective security from an eight-digit pin. And, you know, arguably, even that's not very secure. I mean, we all no- none of us would use an eight-character password. We just wouldn't. But, you know, there's a static eight-character, eight-digit pin on the router. So what was discovered was... As a consequence of this protocol, which is being used, the it's possible to try four digits separately from the entire eight. So, you know, my immediate reaction was, okay, well, why doesn't the the access point just fake that? Yes, uh, you got the first four. Go for the second four, and instead of d- denying when the first four were wrong, hold that back until until all eight have been guessed and then the bad guy doesn't know that just the first four digits are incorrect it doesn't allow him to to tackle essentially these the eight digit pin two pieces at a time okay so in order to understand why this was done i plowed into the protocol and what i learned was interesting which is the reason we're talking about it, because I think all of our listeners who get a kick out of, as you said, Leo, thought experiments, you know, how do I, how would I solve this problem? This is explainable, you know, in one of our typical, you know, security now, everyone's going to understand this when we're done ways that I think people are going to get a big kick out of. So first of all, the reason, um, the reason that the protocol was designed as it was, was it requires mutual authentication. That is to say, if you think about it, it's not just the client that needs to prove that it knows the router's PIN because this is radio and we don't really know who we're talking to. You know, it could be someone next door or upstairs or downstairs. It could be somebody within Wi-Fi range that, that we're connected to. So, so think about it. It's that if, if there was a third party, if there was a, a malicious access point that was trying to get you to connect to it, I mean, it would want to. It would be able to have all of your unencrypted traffic and get up to all kinds of mischief that way. So there's a tremendous incentive for an evil access point to pretend to be the access point you, you want to connect to and you think you're connecting to. Instead, you're connecting to it. And because remember that our encrypted traffic is only encrypted in the air. And unless we're also over SSL, 
for endpoint to endpoint encryption from the client out to a remote server, then the access point decrypts it in the clear. So malicious access points are a problem. The point is that the malicious access point also does not know the actual target access points pin. So, so what we want is we want to require the parties at each end of this connection, this sort of nascent, we're in the process of building a, some trust between part A, you know, party A and party B, or the, the client and the, the access point, the server. We want both ends to have to prove that they know this pin. That way, that way we know that we're connecting to the access point that we intend because it knows the pin that's printed on its own label. But a bad guy can't produce the pin. So, so this isn't a unidirectional client proves it knows the pin. This has to be bidirectional. It has to be mutual authentication. Now, here's the problem. Again, it's radio. So it's in the air. And we have no security. We're, there's, no, there's no starting security. There, we have a client that the access point has never encountered before. They don't know anything about each other. They don't know make, manufacturer, model number. I mean, they know nothing. So, so we don't have something like we have with SSL where we've got the whole, secure, the whole certificate authority system where, for example, the access point has a certificate that was issued by VeriSign or DigiCert and and we're like we're we're we and the access point has a has a known label which even though for example in the in case of SSL is a domain name and we're connecting to it with that domain name and we know that nobody else has that domain name et cetera et cetera et cetera. There's a whole infrastructure in place that we've discussed many times, which SSL uses for connecting to to remote servers and authenticating that is it's not just security it's it's they're proving who they are thanks to this whole certificate authority system we don't have that here with with a a wi-fi client and some random access point they're starting from ground zero and a bad guy by definition can eavesdrop that is listen to all of our communications can inject their own traffic, can modify the traffic in a man-in-the-middle sort of way, can intercept, delete, or drop any traffic. We have to be secure against all of that, which is a really interesting problem. If you think about it, like there's three people here, three, three actors. There's two who are trying to develop a trusted connection, and a third that is that we're trying to exclude from that yet we have given it full attack power it can do anything it wants to to our communications so this is a cool problem so the question is how do how does each end of the good guy connection prove that it that it knows this this one pin and we'll just assume it's an eight-digit pin, an eight, 
an, an eight-digit pin for the moment. We'll, we'll talk about why it's necessary to chop it in half in a second. But how do they how how do, how do they prove they know it without disclosing it to somebody who's listening who can see every single packet that goes back and forth between these endpoints? Well, the way this is done is very clever. Um, it uses some a, a technology, a, a, a crypto technique that we understand. We've talked about many, many times. A hash, just a hash. We know that a hash function is a is a so-called one-way function. You hash something of any size, and it produces a fixed size signature, essentially that that is that has a relationship to what you gave it so that any any time you put the same thing in you get the same thing out yet the 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 cryptographic definition is that you cannot go backwards and in fact it's a this hashing process is a lossy function meaning you could pour the whole dictionary into it and you get the same size token well obviously the whole dictionary's information content cannot be represented by a little small little thing. They're just that it doesn't have enough bits to represent all the the information in the dictionary. So this it's a lossy, an information lossy function. But the point is, every time you were to feed the same dictionary into the same hash, you get the same token. And if you change one character anywhere in that dictionary, you get a radically different result. And the whole point of this is it is not feasible, computationally feasible, even with all the, comp- the computers we have now, to, to predict or predetermine what that output will be for a given input. But, so, it, so it's this one-way function. It's very cool. Okay, so how do we use that? This is just it's so neat. Um, the, um, the client takes the pin that it knows and it adds a a random blob now in cryptography we call that a nonce as in it's only going to be used once so it takes a 128 bit random or pseudo random thing and it appends it to the pin and hashes that so it it hashes the pin plus this nonce now we know what that that nonce is called. It's called salt. It's called salting the hash. It's a way of essentially creating hash functions which which cannot be mapped out in advance. Like if it was just the pin by itself with the hash, then it would be possible to someone to pre-compute all the outputs for all the possible pins. There aren't that many pins after all. It's only eight digits. So that would not be hard to do. And, and that way... A bad guy could could see that the if when, when this ha- the output of the hash was sent over through the air, they could say, "Oh, look that up in our table," and then instantly know what the eight character pin was, and then themselves be able to authenticate to this um, the router and get on the individual's network and so forth. But appending this 128 bit randomness blows that completely. So we have this 128-bit randomness plus the pin, which is hashed, and the client sends that over to the access point. 
So it's just this blob of debris, essentially. And notice that it tells the attacker or anyone listening nothing. All they get is noise, 128 bits or whatever. Well, actually, I should say whatever the hash size is. This protocol uses SHA-256, but it only uses 128 bits of the 256-bit output. So it is 128 bits. So, so this hash can go through the air, and because it's a one-way function, nothing can be determined about what was, went into the hash. So the access point has that. Okay, and the next step is the access point does the same thing. It invents, it comes up with a, its own nonce, its own 128-bit random blob, concatenates that to the pin, hashes it, and sends it to the client. So now each end is holding a, the result of the other end's hash of the pin that they both, maybe they both share, and random things they just invented. So now what happens is the client sends its nonce, the random number it made up, to the access point. And the access point does the same thing, sends its nonce to the client. And if you think about what's in the air, what went by in the air was a, a hash of the pin and randomness that tells an attacker nothing, and then went in the air, through the air, is that random thing that was concatenated to the pin. And that's also just randomness. So what this allows is, without ever exposing the pin... Now what happens is the access point is in receipt of the hash and the client's nonce. So it can concatenate the pin, which they have in common, presumably that they share, to the client's randomness, hash that, and it should get the same hash value that the client first sent, which is to say... If those match, if the, if the access point hashes the same data that the client did, it'll get the same result. That's what hashes do. And the only way it's going to get the same result is if the pin was the same, both that the client hashed and that the access point hashed, and vice versa. The client, I mean, the access point has sent its hash, and secondly, its random number over to the client, and the client is able to hash those the only, and, and verify that the result of that, it, it's basically doing the same thing that the access point did, and the access point sent the result to the client, only if those match. The only way those can match is if the access point knew and had the same pin as the client. So it's, it's cool and very elegant. It's this, it's this, this interlock, the, the, the sending of the hash to each side is, is called a commitment. That is, each end makes this commitment of, of data, uh, taking the, the pin and this 
this random value and sends it to the other, then each end sends the random value, which allows each end to recreate the hash and verify that it matches what they expect. Only if the pins are the same will that work. So it's, it's very cool. So, so here's the problem. Um, the people who developed this wanted to have a short pin. And somebody listening will see the hash go across and the, 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 they will see the, the output from the hash go across. And then the next phase is the random number that is being the, the salt essentially for the hash goes across. They now, an attacker can now perform an offline attack. That is, they know what the hashing function is because that's part of the spec. So eight digits is just not enough protection. Eight digits is two, it, it is, is 10 to the eight, obviously, is, is um, 100 million combinations. Well, that's two to the 26.575. Just, it's the equivalent of 26 bits. We know 26 bits is just not enough strength. So, so what, a, what any eavesdropper could do is simply listen to this dialogue, um, capture the information in the air, and then take it home, crank it through a, a forward process, meaning that they know what the, they know what the random number was that's, that's added to the pin. So they go pin, zero, 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 add the random thing to it, hash it, see if it matches the hash that was first sent. If not, zero, 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 one, add the random hash, see if it matches. Then zero, 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 two, zero, 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 three, and so on. The fact is, this is just not secure. Now, the, the, the protocol was cut in half, as we talked about it, in order to attempt to provide some protection against an active attacker. You'll notice that if, if we were talking to a bad guy, instead of a bad guy listening, we just described the problem of a bad guy listening, but if we were actually talking to a bad guy, we have sent the bad guy our hash. The bad guy sent us, we assume, his hash of the pin that he's pretending to know, but we don't know if it's valid or not. Then we send our random, um, our, our, our random nonce. Well, now the attacker, again, has everything they need to, to brute force this, pro, the, this protocol. They, the attacker can't actually follow, that, follow through with a fourth phase and, and give us its nonce because it doesn't have the pin. But because it ca- captured those two pieces of information, the hash result and the nonce from the client, it can now brute force. So this troubled the designers. And they said, okay, 
how can we strengthen this? <laughs> Unfortunately, the way they did it was, let's not give them everything at once. Let's make the, see that the problem is with just those first two messages from the client, come all the information has gone over that is needed to brute force this eight-digit PIN. So instead, they chopped it in half. They said, we're going to send, we're going to hash only the first four digits and send that over and make the other side verify the, that first half before we ever put the second half on the line. So, frankly, it's weak. It's, it's just, there is, there is fundamentally, you could, I'm sure you could demonstrate this mathematically. There is no way to do what the Wi-Fi Alliance wants to do and have it be secure. They, they chopped wow. this up into, into two. Yeah, I know. They chopped it up into two halves so that, so that the, the other guy would have to show the first half of the pin, prove that it also knew those four digits before the client would, would give the second half, which would then provide enough information for, for, for brute forcing. The problem is, as we've just seen, if the, if the access point is yeah. evil and it's unable to provide the information, then the protocol shuts down. Well, I mean, that's good, but it turns out that the, the, you're only having to guess four digits for that first phase. So now we're down to two to the 13th. That is half of that two to the 26th. We're two to the 13th bits. So some, it's easy to do some math and say, if I have a one in 10,000 chance of guessing and I'm able to guess once every two minutes, for example, which is like what these access points do is they go dark. If you, you get three guesses, then it's dark for some number of minutes, then it lights up again. So you, you look at how often you're able to make a guess and it turns out that even in the worst case, it, it, in, in a number of hours or maybe a day, you're able to get the first four, and then you simply do the second four. The problem is the pin is static. When I was researching this, I went back and looked at the original source documents, the papers that were written by the the security researchers who went into great detail and depth on, on this whole concept of simple pairing, the idea of two entities they want to build trust. And every single instance of this, of this discussion, this academic discussion with crypto, specifically says the pin can only be used once. And think See, about it. If, if they just did that, if yes. they adhered to the standard, we'd be all right. Well, it, no. See, that's just it. The academics, the cryptographers know Right. You can only use the pin once. The Wi-Fi Alliance said, mm. "Well, that would be too expensive." Oh, because we, we couldn't want print to pr- it. We couldn't print it on the side of the of the router. <laughs> yes, they said we want to print it, and so it's going to be a static pin. Yeah. And so they made a compromise, which too bad. is really a problem. So, so 
standing back from this now, I mean, I know I just dipped everybody's head as in some some serious protocol, but what the the takeaway from this is that if anybody who ever listens to WPS pairing can take it home, can take the traffic home and crack it. Yeah. Offline. They do not need and that, that well, that's that, so, important too. Yes. They do not it doesn't matter if you shut down WPS when you make a mistake for a week. If a successful pairing is observed. Oh wow. That's the problem. That's if a bigger a, hole than we than I knew. I mean that's yes. yeah. As I said, there was some new information in this podcast, Leo. That's not if good. A, no. It, if a successful pairing is observed, then as just as the way I explained it, even with chopping it in fourths or in, 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 into four pieces in, in half so that each side gives half at, at a time, all the information is there that allows a bad guy to take what they observed in the air, go home, and do a forward brute force attack on the hash, and they they only have to do um, this eight digits, and they can come out come back in a short time with a with a WPS pairing that will succeed the first time. So, blo- blocking this if it fails on the first four digits isn't secure. The takeaway from this is WPS can never be secure because they did not use a dynamic pin. Apple does. Apple, the way you use simple pairing with, with a, an airport is you, you turn on their airport agent. It generates a pin, which you then authenticate using and say, thank you very much. You're now paired. Works beautifully. That's not a problem because an attacker will never, will never, um, be able to attack with the same pin. If they if they captured that traffic, well, they'll know what the right. pin was that time, mm-hmm. but they won't be able, you know, next time they try to pair, the the airport will come up with a different pin and they're they're in the weeds again because these nonces, these the random tokens ver- guarantee that every one of these transactions is is completely unique using different data. But the the really troublesome takeaway is a passive eavesdropper who ever sees a successful WPS pairing can take that traffic home, brute force it, come back and pair the first time. No shutout will be effective. So everybody within, within distance of this podcast needs to sooner or later arrange to shut down WPS. It, It was a bad idea. Um, because they 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 took a shortcut. All the academicians know you have to use a dynamic pin. They said, "Well, these access points aren't going to have displays. They're not. You know, we're not. You you can't bring up a. Uh, well, actually, you could bring up a web. Well, that's a what, web. That's what Apple page. does. See, that's what's interesting. So Apple uses its yeah. client software. There is no display on a router from Apple. Right. Right. But uh, but there's a conversation that goes on. Right. Right over the land side, right? Right over, over the wired land, over the wire, when, or wireless land. But you still, you still are uh, uh, setting. Uh, I can't remember a pin how it which works. is changing every time. Uh, it's yes. a new pin every time. It's a one-time use. Yep, and that is 
that is robust. I mean, it'd be nice if it were longer, but it's like, okay, fine. You know, the chances are one in a hundred million of guessing it if it changes every time. And they stay one in a hundred million because it's going to be different. So right. you can't run through zero, 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 <laughs> all the way to nine, 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 nine. It's going to be changing all the time. So we have a troubled protocol with wireless um, protected security, and the only thing people can do is turn it off. And and if you have a Linksys, you can't turn it uh, off. Currently, it, it's going to um, – I have not looked recently and updated where vendors are. Vendors tend to move rather slowly. You know, they're scurrying around. There, there was – I contacted the PR firm two weeks ago when we first talked about this for the Wi-Fi Alliance and was given a statement – that sounded like it came from a PR firm <laughs> that, you know, that basically said nothing. There was no technological, technological component at all. And it's like, okay, well, that didn't tell me anything. It just, but it did say there are three things that we have identified and we are in communication with all Wi-Fi Alliance partners and working with them towards a solution for this. And it's like, okay, good luck with that. I mean, certainly, Linksys needs to be able to disable this. Netgear, we know you can disable it. Everybody needs to disable it. Just this was a bad idea, and at least our listeners know. Similar to WEP, although easier to crack. <laughs> well, and, the, I mean, they the developers knew this. This is not a surprise. There is There are charts showing that two raised to the negative... Um, 13.36 or something, which is the the number of guesses, the, the probability of guessing a four-digit pin, they understood that there was a brute forcing, there, were, there was a guessing problem or there was an offline brute force attack, which is why you can't use the same pin. But if it's printed on the back of the router, you're stuck using the same pin. That's the router's pin. In fact, someone tweeted me that somewhere in Europe, there was an ISP that was widely deployed, hundreds of thousands of routers. Everyone had the same pin. <laughs> they didn't even change them. It's like, oh, <laughs> God. Come on. I mean, that's a disaster. You don't now need... you've got all of the routers with the same pin, you so need... you, a bad guy can pair the first try. Yeah, no big deal. Although I think maybe it was disabled by default. I think WPS was disabled in that case. So it was the same pin, but it was not on. And, of course, the majority of WPS is enabled because the Wi-Fi alliance says, oh, we want it to be easy. <laughs> wow. Wow is right. Steve Gibson, uh, always an eye-opener. This one's a really bad one. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as you said on the radio show, and thank you for being on last weekend, uh, if you have a Linksys, all you can do is keep checking to see if there's a firmware update. And for the rest of us, just turn off WPS. If if you can is the point. And Linksys will make you think you can because there's a checkbox. Huh, which it ignores. But it ignores and it. The, the other thing that would be nice would be if if it were possible for the user to change the pin. That's the other problem is if you ever give the pin to a friend who comes over, then they have access to your router as long as WPS is enabled. Right. So, you know, it'd be, I mean, it's going to cause a lot of problems and confusion because the pin written on the back of the router will no longer be the pin that the router oh, honors if you're able to go in and They, they and may change. never fix this. But Actually. you really should. 
Yeah, the, just disabling it is the best thing. Oh, put DDWRT on if you have a router yes. that supports it or, or tomato. Or tomato. Yep. yep. It's better anyway, frankly. Yep. Steve is at GRC.com. That's his website, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. You'll also find all his freebies. You'll also find the feedback form because next week we're going to do Q&A. An hour early, by the way. Oh, you 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern at twit.tv because of uh, Live with Kelly. Yeah, you're going to go back east. I'm flying to New York right after the show. be a star. Well, (laughs) whatever. So, yes, grc.com slash feedback. Fill up my mailbag with thoughts and (laughs) questions, and uh, and we'll do them next week. Excellent. Excellent. Steve, by the way, if you're there, Steve always makes uh, 16-kilobit audio versions available for the people who are really bandwidth-constrained, maybe on a smartphone or something. And... uh, he also has transcripts, which is really the ultimate in squeezed-down size. Uh, all at grc.com. At twit.tv, we have the video. We have uh, audio and video. And uh, so either way. And, of course, you can watch live next week, a little early, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Leo. See you next time on Security Now. Security Now.